Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Hello everybody, welcome to SourceFed. My name's Joe Beretta and this is Today in History. The first ATM opens for business in 1969. Author of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, says you shall not pass away, but then up and dies anyways in 1973. And Ho Chi Minh declares Vietnam's independence hours after the Japanese surrender in World War II in 1945. But in 1885 in Rock Springs, Wyoming, in an event that would serve as a specimen for the racial tension of the time, 150 coal miners riot, killing 28 people in the Rock Springs massacre. Allow me to paint the scene. Chinese immigration to the United States had amassed nearly a hundred thousand settlers across the country. The anti-Chinese sentiment was becoming widespread, as is known to happen in societies when a new culture is introduced. <laughs> I say, people suck sometimes. Case in point, any movie where they say, we don't take kindly to your like in these parts, or E.T. Now, while the Chinese mostly worked on the railroad, after a labor dispute with the Union Pacific Coal Department in Sweetwater County, the immigrant workers were hired at lower rates in the coal mines, angering many of the white workers who felt that they were being undercut by the cheap source of alternative labor. And while the white workers, who were made up of mostly Cornish, Irish, Swedish, and Welsh immigrants, worked alongside their Chinese counterparts, no precautions were put in place to prevent racial riots, as up until this point, there had been no indicators that this would be a thing to worry about. Looking back, maybe the introduction of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1883 prohibiting any new Chinese workers from coming to town could have been a heads up that the community wasn't too in favor of playing nice, but hey, hindsight is 2020. In August, a group called the Knights of Labor had taken to posting notices demanding the expulsion of Chinese workers. Again, another decent indicator that there could be violence, but hey, who am I to judge? The future, that's who. And then on the morning of September 2nd, 150 men armed with Winchester rifles made their way to Chinatown in Rock Springs in a military-like fashion, surrounding the inhabitants and effectively starting their massacre, resulting in 28 confirmed deaths. But it's said that 40 to 50 fatalities might be more accurate as some bodies were never accounted for, and the burning down of homes amounted to $150,000 in property damage, which by today's term would equate to a whopping 3.83 million, uh, AKA numbers I don't understand understand because it's so big. No effective legal action was taken against those who participated other than the miners getting fired for their role in the massacre. A week later, federal troops escorted the fled Chinese miners back to Rock Springs, but the damage was done, spawning a wave of anti-Chinese violence across the nation. And that's what happened today in history. And what you were just listening to is very much in connection to our guest coming up on Arts Express. Chinese-American actor Tai Ma, starring in a multitude of productions on both the big and small screens, Tai is perhaps best known for The Man in the High Castle, 24, the Rush Hour movies, Mulan, Star Wars, Silicon Valley, Madam Secretary, Criminal Minds, Hawaii Five-0, Grey's Anatomy, Battle in Seattle, The Magnificent Seven, his first role in Cocaine Cowboys with Jack Palance and Andy Warhol back in 1970, and currently in the TV series Kung Fu. But our conversation was also very much about subjects close to the Hong Kong immigrant's heart, his adamant search for playing positive dads on screen and as Father's Day approaches, and participating in protests against the alarming rise in race hate against Asian Americans a result of the dangerous racist rhetoric and COVID blame game by the Trump and now Biden administrations as well against China. Though nothing new in the course of centuries of shameful U.S. history, as we just heard. We'll also hear Tai phoning in from Vancouver, still on location shooting Kung Fu, about his own experience of racial victimization and one of those organizations he and other Asian actors are involved with, Wash the Hate. Let's give a listen. We're living at a time when humanity matters most. Even though we're physically apart, we must all come together as one. Yes, we're worried about our health, our loved ones, job prospects, our nation. It's a scary time, but we can't let fear turn into hate. Far too many people are using this crisis as an excuse to forget reason and embrace racism. Asian Americans have been the victims of verbal and physical harassment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Law enforcement has recorded a surge in hate crimes aimed at our community. Families have been shunned. 
businesses vandalized. People attacked on public transportation and children bullied and called hurtful names. Can you imagine what it's like to face this kind of behavior at a time like this? That's what many of us across America are dealing with during this crisis. And the number of incidents, you know, they will rise. We must all stop the stigma. We must all stop the xenophobia. We must all stop the hate. This crisis has revealed some of our strengths. Communities virtually coming together to raise money, feed people, lift spirits up. So let's make sure ending this behavior becomes one of our strengths. Stand up against racism when we see it. Support local Asian American business owners. Take care of your neighbors. We will get through this with empathy, care, and love of our fellow man, woman, and child. As members of SAG-AFTRA and as Americans, we know our strength is in our diversity. We are always stronger together. And now here's Taima following some scenes from one of his shows, The Man in the High Castle. If you could do anything with your life, what would you like to do? Well, my father told me what it was like before the war. He said every man was free. America. I want my country back. I pledge allegiance. Axis powers of America. And to the Republic for which it stands. One nation under rule. Divided. Liberty and justice. Evil triumphs only when good men do nothing. I'm here because I want to do the right thing. Take this. What is this? A way out. Hello, good morning. Well, welcome to our show. It's good to be there. What led you to want to be part of Kung Fu, and what are you up to in the series? Ah, Kung Fu. What? Why am I interested in Kung Fu? <laughs> How do I count the weight? Uh, it is the most diverse show that I have worked on, and it has the most inclusive show I ever worked on. Uh, the Writer's Room is 50% women, uh, very rare uh, in any writer's room. Uh, people of color, uh, LGBTQ is represented in the Writer's Room. And so far, all of our guest directors on the show have been women, people of color, and LGBTQ uh, directing our show. So I think that is the dawn of a new day, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. uh, I think hopefully we, you know, people will, will clone us. <laughs> and uh, it seems like we found an audience. Uh, the numbers are very good. So uh, hopefully uh, you know, we can be a blueprint for future shows all around the world. I, am, uh, I play the father of the heroine of our show. Uh, he is a loving, doting dad. Shout out to those dads 
Chinese American culture, you know, to really embrace and let their children to take their own paths as opposed to controlling their path. Mm. So I'm happy with that outcome. What do you feel is being done or can be done on both the big and small screens to counteract Asian American depictions and caricatures? I think, first of all, avoid caricatures. You know, that's number one. And make sure all your characters are three-dimensional instead of just single them singly for no purpose of existence. You need to put some meat on the, on the skeletons that you create. Uh, realistic portrayal, representation of, uh, of, uh, of, and also, you know, the AAPI communities are multi-ethnic, multicultural. So you really also have to think about that we, one voice, cannot represent all the voices within the AAPI community. So we really need a more diverse, you know, uh, 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 opportunity so that all the voices can be heard. And I think that is a very important endeavor that we try to do in our show, to invite that into our house and to share that with our audiences. And I think behind the scenes, the people who are calling the shots also needs to reflect the people in front of the screen. So if you're going to tell an Asian American story, then hopefully that you should get some Asian Americans that's going to help you tell that story behind the scenes. And I think these are very important endeavors that we try to strive in our show and hopefully other shows will find that uh, diversity do pay. And I think we've been, uh, I think that's been proven globally in terms of what people will want to see. And uh, it seems like diversity is the way to go, you know, in the, in the entertainment business and film and television. And I would suggest that you embrace diversity. And I wanted to ask you, in terms of the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes lately, what are your thoughts about this being not simply hate rhetoric against another country, China, which is continuing under the new Biden administration, because there's been hostile rhetoric against Russia for over a century, and you don't see assaults and murders of Russian Americans. So what else do you think is going on? It's unfortunate that, you know, we have that legacy. Anti-Asian hate is not new. It's always been happening yeah. all the way back to when we first set foot on this land to build, to help build the Continental Railroad. Mm. And you know, we, we have seen lynching, lynchings uh, in different parts of you know states uh, that people don't know and don't talk about. Rock Spring, Wyoming, uh, is, comes to mind. Uh, you know, 28 Chinese Americans were lynched. Uh, L.A. Uh, also happened in the in the 1800s where they were they burned down Chinatown. They were lynchings there. Uh, you know these things are not new. And systemic racism is something that we need to recognize and need to address because otherwise, uh, you know, it runs deep. And and if you and, and words do really is important in what we say and what we do. You know, even with, with the, but I think, you know, when you cover the news, you cover the news. Okay, if it's an event about trade talks between China and, and, and the U.S., okay, you cover that, that particular story. But, if to, I mean, to give the opinions such as, oh, in order to, you know, to reach all across the aisle and, and to have a consensus, you know, you single out China as the public enemy number one. Mm. I think that, you know, that doesn't really help that situation any because people don't know how to draw the line. Things that happen in China, it bleeds over to America, and we are the ones who are catching the brunt of it, mm. the Asian Americans in America, because people in America cannot tell the difference between China and Chinese Americans mm. or Asian Americans, period, because you can tell us apart anyway. Yeah. So we're being attacked as a group. So in that sense, it shows our ignorance that we need to be corrected, shows that our systemic racism that has run so deep that we need to at least acknowledge that exists. You know, where do we, de- where do, where do we take this and have a point of departure, have a point of conversation, have a point of discussion, at least that. Mm. You know, if we refuse to recognize systemic racism exists in America, then we were going, we're going to go nowhere because obviously we're not the only 
of racism. Mm. So really, racism against one group is racism against all groups, yeah. all humanity. And, and we can't have that because, you know, you look at this pandemic. It's a global situation. We're not alone. You know, we don't exist, you know, by ourselves. You know, everything has, has a consequence. Mm -hmm. and, and really, be careful, you know, what you say. And really, uh, uh, to, to really put China in, in a situation where it's going to start to reflect on us, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's going to be difficult, you know, for us to at least in this moment in time with the pandemic, we need to tone down our rhetoric. I think that is really important mm -hmm. and something that I think all we can all do something about, you know. And you've been a victim yourself of these Asian hate crimes. What can you say about that and how it led you to become an activist in actions like Watch the Hate? And what is that all about? Well, I've always been an activist first, acting activist second. Because that's the situation I'm in, because I'm a, I'm a minority. And I think all minorities need to be our activists. Otherwise, uh, you, know, you know, things will happen to us that, you know, that, that is really need not to happen. Uh, I was shopping in, uh, in my neighborhood grocery store. A car rose up in front of me and uh, decided to stop in front of me, rolled down his window, and scream out the window at me and said, you should be quarantined, mm -hmm. and took off. <laughs> I said, wait a second, this is my neighborhood. I'm, I live here, and I'm being accosted by this, this dude, man. And it, I went cold. I really did. It, it, it's, it's such a violation. If you don't go through it, if people have not yelled at you, you know, in some racial slur or anything, you would never know the experience. And I've faced it all my life. Hmm. And I tell you, this got to stop. Yeah. And I've been trying to stop this kind of, you know, trend and momentum all my life. And this is nothing new to me, unfortunately. And I hope one day, you know, at least if not me, my future, you know, future generations going to have to face the things that I have to face, mm. you know, all my life. And hence, uh, I'm vested. I, I want to make sure this is a better world, you know, for people who are going to live on and, and, and flourish. Mm. Okay, thank you so much, Tai Ma, for calling into the show. Thank you very much. Represent. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you so much, Perry. Thanks for talking. And that was Tai Ma talking about many important things, and he can be seen currently in Kung Fu on the CW channel. John Savage. If you're, if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Next on Arts Express in the Radio Drama Corner, Jack Shalom with A Memoir That Shaped the Rest of My Life, with connections to Benedict Arnold, Proust, bookstores, chalk, allergies, demerits, a rainy Thursday morning, and Hamlet. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Every time I go into a bookstore lately, they're always 
pushing the latest memoir of someone or other. Well, I'm no Marcel Proust, and there are no Madeleines around, but I just finished consuming a big bag of strawberry-frosted double cream Oreo, so I should be good to go. I thought you might enjoy hearing a memoir about one day at my elementary school that shaped the rest of my life. The school that I went to was called PS99 in Brooklyn, and it was built so long ago that not only had all my brothers and sisters gone there, but my father, when he was a child, also attended there. But it was not just the building that was old, it was not just the textbooks which were old, but the teachers who were ancient as well. I even had some of the same teachers that my father had had. By the time I got there, the teachers all seemed to be 90 years old and they were tough as nails. And it was in PS 99 that I learned the concept of good and bad, heaven and hell. Only in the classroom, they called it the A-list and the D-list. You see, in order to instill discipline in the class, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Benedict, who insisted she was a distant relative of Benedict Arnold in order to scare us, would put up two columns on the chalkboard, one marked with a big A for those she deemed good, and then for the miscreants, the lowlifes, the discourteous, a column labeled with a giant D and woe to you if you ended up on that D-list. It was mostly the girls who were on the A-list, of course. On the D-list were the boys who couldn't sit still like Frankie D'Angelo, who would run around the classroom bopping other kids on the head. And when Mrs. Benedict wanted to emphasize just who was good and who was bad, she would add check marks after the name, indicating whether you were particularly good or bad. So every time a kid like Frankie talked back, he got another check mark next to his name. Six, seven, eight check marks. We wondered how much a boy could withstand when it came to all those check marks. We feared Mrs. Benedict, but every once in a while she would want to slip out of the classroom. So she'd hand the chalk to the student who was voted the class president. And it would be up to the class president to go up to the board and put up the infamous A and D list. Now the class president, Andrea Gringold, was something of a tyrant herself, and when she had that chalk in her hand, she commanded almost as much fear as Mrs. Benedict. But it was on a rainy Thursday morning, a morning when Andrea Gringold's mother kept her home because of her allergies, that Mrs. Benedict, wanting to leave the classroom, but seeing that her class president was absent, called on her class vice president, which was me. Don't ask me how I became class vice president. I never asked for it. I think it was some part of a deal that two other kids had worked out. Anyway, I had never had any duties to perform, so I was taken aback when Mrs. Benedict, who was going out to take a little nip in the teacher's bathroom, handed me the chalk. Make the list and make sure you get the names of anybody who speaks in class or causes trouble. Anybody. And I didn't know what to do. I was alone. Andrea Gringold was not there. Why did she have to pick today to have allergies? Right away, I knew I was ill-suited to the job. I felt a sickly pall fall over me. I stood up in front of the class, paralyzed like an actor with stage fright. Aren't you gonna put up the list, Kenny Spillman asked? Oh. The list. I picked up the chalk and felt it roll in my fingers. Usually being allowed to handle the teacher's chalk and write on the blackboard was a special treat. Not everybody was allowed to do it. If you picked up chalk unauthorized, at least two demerits and a phone call home. But here, I was allowed to pick up the chalk. And in this instance, it should have been a wonderful feeling of power but I didn't feel powerful at all. And then it came to me. Maybe I thought, just maybe, maybe we didn't need lists. I stood in front of that classroom and said, well, class, I don't really believe in lists, so I'm not going to make them. 
There was a moment of contemplation. And then all at once pandemonium broke out and a yelling and a screaming such as I had never heard before. They demanded the lists, even the girls. It's not fair. Who do you think you are? You have to put up the lists. We're not going to be good for nothing. So having already undermined my own authority in a moment of weakness, I turned towards that ominous black chalkboard. There was still a ruckus until Richie Cornstock in the third row said, Everybody, shut up, shut up. He's trying to get the list up. I slowly put up the two letters that the crowd demanded to see, a big A and a big D with three underlines each. And the class became eerily quiet. It was really, really quiet. A minute passed, two minutes passed, three minutes passed. It was an eternity of fourth grade time with no one talking. But they were all looking at me in expectation, wondering what I was going to do with those two empty lettered columns. I knew this was my moment. Like the high diver at the edge of the board, my moment had come and I had to do something or else I would be engulfed by their screams once more. So I slowly looked around the room and then I focused on Lisa Lorinosa, who was sitting erect in her chair with her hands clasped tightly in front of her, so tightly that I thought her pigtails would pop out of her scalp. And I put her on the A-list. Well, no one could argue with that. I mean, if Lisa Florinosa didn't belong on the A-list, then nobody did. She had her homework every day, and as soon as she sat down in her seat in the morning, she folded her hands. If you asked her whether she had seen the man from Uncle or the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show the night before, she would tell you no, she wasn't allowed to watch television on a school night, and besides, she had to be in bed by 7.30, her mother said. So there was no one who was going to argue with me about this girl being on the A-list. She was a martyr as far as we were concerned. And then it happened. Frankie D'Angelo was getting out of his seat again and, and stabbing Freddy Kozlowski with his pen, jabbing it pretty hard into his shoulder. And Freddy was yelling, what are you, some kind of lunatic? And that only made Frankie start stabbing harder because word was he had some kind of diagnosis. I was kind of stunned, but then I told myself if I just waited it out, maybe Frankie would get all the stabbing out of his system and he would sit back down. But he didn't, so I was at a loss. Well, it seemed that I was supposed to do something about it, but I couldn't, so I pretended I had something important to say to Lisa Florinosa in the front row. Then I realized that Lisa was not allowed to talk to me because her mother told her she could not talk to any of the boys in the class if the teacher was not around. Meanwhile, Frankie, concerned that he was not getting enough of a rise out of Freddie, grabbed the compass that was lying on the teacher's math tool shelf and started stabbing Freddy's arm with the point of the compass. But Freddy let out a yell, what the hell are you doing? And soon he was punching Frankie in the stomach. I didn't know what to do, so I put both of them on the D-list. But somehow that didn't stop them. They were rolling on the floor, and so I just started putting check marks next to their names, check mark after check mark. And I, I am very sorry to report that that didn't stop them either. So then Susan Cohen starts yelling hysterically at me to stop them, do something. And I'm pointing to the board with all my strength, like, are you blind? Can't you see that I put them both on the D-list and I got a million checks next to both of their names? But she's kept screaming at me to do something. So what else could I do? They put Susan Cohen on the D-list. Then she got really mad because I don't think she had ever been on the D-list before, so she felt like it was a personal affront. And she started screaming even more at me. How dare you put me on the list? By this time, Frankie and Freddie had gotten each other in headlocks. I felt really bad that someone usually so good as Susan Cohen would turn against me and undermine what little authority I had. So I put a couple of checks after her name too. Then, her best friend, Luann Unterberg, objected loudly, saying that Susan hadn't done anything to deserve more checks and that I had better erase her name from that list. Well, 
Then I had to put Luann's name on the list too, and it wasn't long after that that she too had a whole slew of checks after her name. In fact, I think in the next five minutes or so, I had written down the name of just about everyone in the class onto the D-list. It was at that point that the door opened and in walked Mrs. Benedict. There was an immediate hush in the room while Benedict's narrowed eyes slowly scanned every face. Then they alighted on mine and she nodded her head up and down, up and down, over and over. Her mouth had this bizarre half smile at last she spoke. In my 55 years of teaching, I have never encountered a class as discourteous as this one. You are discourteous and your parents are discourteous for raising such discourteous children. Now take out your mathematics workbooks right now. I slunk back down to my chair and we followed orders. We took out our workbooks and did long division problem after long division problem way into the afternoon, way after school was let out, way into the evening, way after punch ball and bicycle riding time. The room remained quiet as a mouse, the silence only punctuated by Mrs. Benedict's periodic mutterings of, I don't care if we have to stay here until next August. Years later, I became a teacher myself. But I could never again bring myself to put up an A-list and a D-list. The thought of classifying people as all one thing or the other has dismayed me ever since. In Shakespeare's play Hamlet, Hamlet says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Clearly, he never had to face an A-list and a D-list. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Now for this important message, a warning actually for multi-billionaire Elon Musk and his many misdeeds, among them applauding that 2019 Bolivian coup against Evo Morales in Musk's insatiable quest for lithium. Greetings, citizens of the world. This is a message from Anonymous, for Elon Musk. For the past several years you have enjoyed one of the most favorable reputations of anyone in the billionaire class, because you have tapped into the desire that many of us have to live in a world with electric cars and space exploration, but recently your carefully created public image is being exposed, and people are beginning to see you as nothing more than another narcissistic rich dude who is desperate for attention. It appears that your quest to save the world is more rooted in a superiority and savior complex than it is in actual concern for humanity. This has been obvious to your employees for a long time, who have faced intolerable conditions under your command for years. It is also obvious to the young children working in your overseas lithium mines, which are destroying the local environment as well. You have been open about your willingness to stage coups in order to install dictators in places where your toxic products are being mined. You have even prematurely crowned yourself Emperor of Mars, a place where you will be sending people to die. Your fanboys overlook these issues because they are focused on the potential good that your projects can bring to the world, but you are not the only show in town, and your competition is growing more intense with each passing day. There are plenty of other companies working on space exploration and electric vehicles, you are just the only CEO who has gained a cult following through shitposting and trolling the world on social media. In fact, Many people are now learning that the vast majority of Tesla's income doesn't actually come from selling cars, it comes from government subsidies, selling carbon tax credits for your innovation with clean energy. 
This technically isn't your innovation though, because you aren't actually the founder of Tesla, you simply purchased the company from two people much more intelligent than you are, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpenning. Tesla has also made more money holding Bitcoin for a few months than they did in years of selling cars. It is also more than likely that this Bitcoin was purchased with money from these government subsidies. It is now widely believed that you have been forced to denounce your company's involvement with Bitcoin in order to keep that green government money flowing into Tesla's coffers. The energy use argument about proof-of-work mining is a very nuanced conversation that requires a fairly complex understanding of how power grids work, and how excess energy is wasted by power companies, and sought out by crypto miners. This is a conversation that you have been having for over a year and were intimately aware of, but as soon as your main source of income was threatened you pretended to be clueless in an attempt to play both sides of the fence. Then, your move to create a Bitcoin miner council was rightly seen as an attempt to centralize the industry and take it under your control. Reading from the comments on your Twitter posts, it seems that the games you have played with the crypto markets have destroyed lives. Millions of retail investors were really counting on their crypto gains to improve their lives. This is something that you will never understand because you were born into the stolen wealth of a South African apartheid emerald mine and have no clue what struggle is like for most of the working people in the world. Of course, they took the risk upon themselves when they invested, and everyone knows to be prepared for volatility in crypto, but your tweets this week show a clear disregard for the average working person. As hard-working people have their dreams liquidated over your public temper tantrums, you continue to mock them with memes from one of your million-dollar mansions. You may think you are the smartest person in the room, but now you have met your match. We are anonymous. We are legion. Expect us. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat and the way working class women make sense of the world. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro spotlights three television series focusing on working-class women, referencing Thelma and Louise, The Pope, Jeffrey Epstein, A Kimono, A Dungeon, and A Whip. First, some scenes from one of those series, starring Kate Winslet and Guy Pearce, Mayor of Easttown. I'm Richard. What's your name? Mayor. Give it up for Miss Lady Hawk herself. Why did they call you Lady Hawk? I made a shot in a basketball game 25 years ago. Must have been some shot. Most places, no. Around here, yeah. What do you do, Mayor? I'm a detective. A detective? You don't have any bodies hidden under your porch, do you? Uh, not yet, no. The Easttown Police Department received a call reporting a dead body in Creedham Creek. Get this son of a bitch who did this. Because if you don't, I'll kill him myself. Tell me about your father. He was my best friend. He passed away when I was 13. He was a detective. At least you've still got your mother. Oh, we can't stand each other. I can feel it happening. Again, this expectation from people to be something I don't think I'm good enough to be. Mayor, I know what you've been through, and I know you're worth saving. The ground is just falling out beneath you. Mom, we don't know what's going to happen, all right? Go back to the fire. Dig deep. Recommit yourself. Doing something great is overrated. Put the gun down! Listen, people expect that from you. All the time. <laughs> this is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Varieties of Working Class Women, Wanted, Bitter Daisies, and Mayor of Easttown. In large parts of the world, anywhere between 50 and 70% of women are now actively engaged in the workplace, with most earning less than men and many performing the essential service and caring jobs that keep their societies running. 
This is, of course, not even to count the nearly 100% of women whose domestic labor is unpaid and whose work in all the activities of reproduction, child rearing, cooking, cleaning, is still officially labeled unproductive. Three series from across the globe, all falling into the crime genre, spotlight the ways working class women make sense of the world and contend with a patriarchy which everywhere besets them. Mare of Easton, an intimate crime. Kate Winslet's Mare is a sodden, downtrodden cop from solid and now decaying Scotch-Irish stock in a place that is less suburb of Philadelphia, its actual location, than embittered ex-mining town in the dried-up Allentown region, whose mines have long since ceased to function. Mare's family consists of her mother, an equally sodden turn from the veteran and wonderful television actress Jean Smart, her lesbian daughter, who is haunted by the demise of her brother and who may escape the town, and an adopted boy of mysterious origins. Right next door lives her ex, who, if that's not torture enough, is about to be blissfully remarried. Mare is an excellent cop who uses her knowledge of the town and her relations in it, both direct and indirect, to solve crimes. No one is above suspicion in the death of a young girl, not the local priest who refuses to talk about why he was relocated to Mare's parish, the father of the dead girl's son, or even the once-honored writer, played by Guy Pierce, who is now a dried-up professor at the local college who courts Mare. What gives the series its breadth and depth is Mare and the other characters' display of raw emotions in this desolate working-class setting, where each struggles to find soothing words rather than fists or inflammatory rhetoric to express themselves. This battle to throw off inarticulateness is manifest most strongly in Mare, who gives way to bullheaded decisions to protect those around her and keep what is hers, but who constantly is pulled in the direction, in spite of herself, of caring for those near her and for the welfare of her community as a whole. This is one of the best American series on the toll the lack of economic opportunity has taken on working class lives, with those in Easttown struggling to keep their heads above water as they watch those around them drowning. The general reaction of the American critics before the mystery swung into high gear was that the series was a bore, that Kate Winslet let herself wallow in mediocre material, a reaction that was less critical opinion than disdain for any series that treats working class life with the seriousness it deserves. A final note, it's odd that this ultimate working class series stars the English actress Kate Winslet and the Australian actor Guy Pearce but perhaps not so strange since each comes from a culture which is much more conscious of class differences than that of the U.S. Wanted on Netflix from Australia features two women who meet by chance and must take flight together in a version of Thelma and Louise that is much more class conscious than the original. Bitter Daisies, also on Netflix, follows a police investigator as she burrows ever deeper into a sex ring that exposes the layers of male violence in the desolate Spanish province of Galatia. And finally, Mayor of Easttown, HBO and Sky Atlantic, presents the dense web of familial and social relationships in a Pennsylvania ex-mining town centered around an anything but star turn by Kate Winslet as a cop trying to solve the murder of a young girl in the town while keeping her family together. The setup for Wanted is exquisite and could have gone on longer. Lola is an aging cashier who has no love for her menial job, sassing her employer and walking off the job when she feels like it. Chelsea is a young accountant at a corporate firm with a rich father who longs to assert herself in a job in which she remains faceless. They cross each other because both wait at an otherwise deserted bus station each midnight, but would have never spoken, except that they suddenly find themselves in the middle of a drug deal gone wrong involving a crooked cop. In defending them, Lola proves adept with a gun, resulting in a death and necessitating them fleeing together with the money from the drug deal, pursued by both the dealers and the police, who are also in on the deal. The series on Australian independent television lasted three seasons. It was hoped Netflix would pick it up for a fourth, but it did not. And over those three seasons, the show highlighted various kinds of and degrees of corrupt cops, mostly male, but finally in the last season also a female corrupt cop who ultimately proves herself understanding of their situation. The actual subject of this series is the relationship forged between the adamantly working-class Lola, whose family is no stranger to Australian prisons, and the privileged Chelsea, who longs to break out of a patterned, luxurious life that she simply inherited and that ultimately confines and limits her. Lola is ingenious at maneuvering in the margins of the law, while Chelsea proves herself adept at manipulating the financial system, which is often dead set against them. 
On the more personal level, Lola is careless and leaves their money around where it can be stolen, and Chelsea snores. In each of the three seasons, there is a moment at the end of the season where they acknowledge what they mean to each other. The series is touchingly about a difficult friendship forged in the midst of an impossible situation where each comes to admire the gifts of the other while accepting their faults. Thelma and Louise, a first blow in the direction of female friendship, formed through a challenging of the patriarchy where the open road offered a vision of freedom, though not at all stressing class differences, ended in tragedy as the only possible ending for such an encounter. Wanted ends its three-season run on a tragic note involving Chelsea, but with the two together in finding solitude in the beaches of southern Australia, while securing the, at this point, deserved gains of their adventure. That they find solace together and don't need to go over a cliff is an acknowledgement within the genre that the outlook for female emancipation has changed. It is now a more than remote possibility, and with Me Too, the potentialities for fulfillment may be increasing, both in the crime genre and in the world at large. Bitter Daisies and Male Establishment Sex Trade Bitter Daisies is set in the rough northwest province in Spain of Galatia, known for hosting the Santiago de Compostela pilgrimage across its mountainous terrain. The native Gallego language is spoken in the series about a newbie female detective sent to the town by the Guardia Civil to solve the disappearance of a young girl against the background of the Pope's visit to the faithful. The detective Rosa follows a trail that leads to several murders in what appears to be a Jeffrey Epstein eyes wide shut ring involving at the lower level in the first season several of the men of the town. Rosa's investigation is a way of exposing the web of male power that leaves the town's young women as prey. And there is even at least a hint that the Pope, whose visit delays and obscures the investigation because of the commotion, is tacitly a part of that male power. The first season also centers around a prostitution nightclub, and Rosa's forays into it in disguise have a prurient element, but also partake of a Spanish Amotivar-esque flair for costuming and sex as female power. Rosa proves herself an able detective in her pursuit of the underlings who connive and murder to arrange and then clean up a debauched party for the region's elite. Rosa is driven by a personal loss and mystery that she is attempting to unearth that may be related to the larger mystery and is the subject of the bitter daisies of the title which show up at what seems to be a burial site. The series is particularly adept at unearthing the layers of corruption engulfing the region and obscuring her investigation. One final reveal at the end of season one, where the lead female's mental condition evokes and then far outstrips that of the counterintelligent agent in Homefront is entirely unnecessary and an arbitrary impugning of her skills. The show then became a global hit, recording, for example, a place in the top 10 most watched non-English language shows in the UK. The second season promised the detective returning to the area and this time investigating the actual web of elite men of the region who are participants in the sex ring involving young girls. The budget is bigger in season two, culminating in a lavish, crowded party scene in the finale. The problem is that in the second season especially, the tendency toward titillation, evident in the first season, continually vies for attention with a kind of hypocritical condemnation of that titillation. There is a particular scene in which a young B&D Spanish mistress, who in order to pile on the fetishized layers, also dresses in a kimono and goes by the Asian name of Huichi, when the detective leaves after questioning her, lingers in her dungeon, flexing her whip and glaring at the camera. Who is this for, if not the men and women, and the audience to indulge in the same kind of mooning that the show accuses its wealthy and powerful of engaging in? The season culminates in an apocalyptic party scene, which is again a combination of exploitation revenge, which speaks to male and female audiences in those two respective registers. In general, though, the exploration of a net of power relations in season two falls prey itself to a need to grab global male audiences. The season focuses again mainly on the functionaries arranging the fete, though there is significant attention paid to the young women who are to be the victims of it. Nevertheless, this focus for the most part conceals the identities of those masked exploiters at the party, and so much of the critique of season one, instead of being deepened, is blunted. Nevertheless, the series is a valiant stab at representing the layers of male privilege dominating not only the region, but extending through the web of young Eastern European women gathered for the Saturnalia, 
across the continent in the dominance of West European masculine power and which, in a Jeffrey Epstein-like web, extends to the British and American world as well. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.